You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Melanie McCarthy McNamara. isn't the first place that springs to mind when you think of gangland violence. But the reality is that unlawful organisations have been a feature of life on this island for many, many years. And like many other places, gangs and the violence that goes along with them increased once the import and sale of drugs in Ireland became involved. The first gangs in Ireland moved from robberies and bank heists into selling what would become a scourge of working-class areas, particularly in Dublin in the 1980s. At first it was just cannabis thrown in with deals to bring guns into the country, but then cannabis became heroin. The violence increased once more as this criminal activity became a multi-million pound industry, and with so much money at stake, As gang leaders were jailed or killed or fled the country, others rose in their place. This nearly inevitably led to power struggles and intra-gang violence. The violence was not contained in Dublin, though it was arguably the focus of activities. Inevitably, feuds and turf wars spilled over and began to affect wider communities. In a few cases, it had fatal results. Melanie McCarthy McNamara was born in 1998. She was the eldest child of Stephen Shaky McCarthy and Melissa McNamara, and she and her family were settled members of the travelling community. Her parents were both originally from Limerick, but Melanie grew up in London, in Kentish Town. Melanie was like a second mum to her younger siblings, and she loved looking after them. She was a vivacious, energetic girly girl who loved dressing up and looking well. Eventually, Melanie moved from London to Talla on the west side of Dublin, where she and her family lived for a number of years. At 16, Melanie moved out of her parents' home and in with her boyfriend, Christopher Moran, and his family in a house on Drumcarn Avenue. Christopher was from a similar background and was a few years older than Melanie. The two planned to be married and were beginning their lives together. On Tuesday the 7th of February, Melanie McCarthy McNamara was just a few weeks away from her 17th birthday. That night, she was collected by three young men driving a silver Nissan Primera from the last stop on Dublin's red tram line, the Lewis, heading to Talla. She was always collected from the Lewis terminus because her boyfriend felt that it was safer for her to get a lift than to walk through Talla at night. Melanie sat in the back of the car and was on the passenger side as the men brought her home. Christopher Moran sat in the front of the car, and driving was his friend, Sean Byrne. The other male has never been named by the press. En route back to Drumcarn Avenue, the men in the car got a call. It was from a friend who said that there were guys outside his house throwing stones and asking for the lads to come and help get rid of whoever it was. And so, the four of them headed to a housing estate not far away. 
The car was parked outside a house in Brookview Way, Tala, in such a way that the passenger side of the car was facing out, furthest from the curb. Just after they pulled up, at about 25 minutes to 11, another car passed by, a black Hyundai Santa Fe SUV. It had been sitting in a nearby cul-de-sac for some time by that stage. As the black car drove down the residential street, a man in that car, in the back passenger seat, pulled a gun and shot into the silver Nissan as he passed by. Two bullets entered through the rear passenger window, and Melanie was struck as she sat there. According to the TV3 documentary Ireland's Teen Killers, what happened was that when the SUV pulled alongside the parked Primera, Sean Byrne had gotten a fright and the silver car had lurched forward. This meant that when the gun was shot, the bullets went through the back passenger window instead of where it had been aimed, to the front. When the shots rang out, Sean Byrne immediately drove to Tala Hospital, which was, under normal circumstances, just a ten-minute drive away. The silver Nissan arrived there quickly. Melanie had a serious gunshot wound to her head. She had taken the full force of the shot to her face, from a range of around only four feet. Despite the efforts of the staff in the emergency room, she was pronounced dead a few hours later at 1am the following day. A Garda investigation into what had happened was immediately begun. Quickly, police found witnesses who said that the black Santa Fe had been sitting in the housing estate waiting for the other car to arrive, with the men inside the silver Nissan being the target of the attack that night. Gardie cordoned off the area outside the house in Brookview Way and combed over the paths and gardens wearing their white protective forensic suits. The residents of the estate were shocked. Their area was quiet in general. Sometimes there would be issues at night, something not uncommon in the Tala area in general, but there had never been any violence. One resident, Michael Gaffney, told Stephen Carroll of the Irish Times that he had heard gunshots at around 20 past 10 the night before, and another also reported hearing loud bangs and thinking it must be gunshots, as fireworks in February would be quite unusual. Whoever was behind the attack had also been the ones who'd been throwing stones at the house too, knowing that the man they wanted would come to see if there was any damage or to try and figure out who was messing with his property when he got the news of the pelting. After speeding off away from the scene of the shooting, the Santa Fe was abandoned just off the Nace Road near to City West Business Park, a few minutes' drive from the scene. It had false license plates on it, and it was discovered that the vehicle had been stolen weeks in advance of the shooting, from near to Rathgar in South Dublin. But whatever planning seemed to have gone into the operation to draw the men out, seemed to have evaporated once the shots were fired. The Santa Fe had been just left off the main road in a high-traffic area. It had not been burnt out, which would be expected in situations such as this in order to destroy evidence. Further, when the area around the bus terminus where the vehicle had been left was searched, scarves, gloves and a double-barrel shotgun were discovered. By Thursday the 9th of February, Gardie announced that they believed that Melanie's murder was part of gangland crime or family feuds and that she had been shot accidentally. Another man in the car with her had apparently been the intended victim, her boyfriend, Christopher Moran. 
Gertie were careful to ensure that the press and public knew that Melanie was not involved in the feuds, though they admitted she did know people who were. They called for the public's help, saying, quote, This is a particularly heinous crime, involving a young girl of 16 years of age. I would appeal to the community to reflect on this, and to take a step back, and to provide whatever assistance they can to give us to investigate this crime. Alan Shatter, the then Minister for Defence, commented, quote, All violent deaths are shocking, but the killing of a young person especially so, end quote. By the 10th of February, Gardy announced that there were two men who had been sighted in the Hyundai 4x4. The witness who saw the men said they appeared to be in a panic, having realised that they shot someone who was not their intended target. The items, found near to the abandoned vehicle, were hoped to provide a further link to them, once forensic examinations were completed. The area that the Santa Fe was abandoned in was also well covered by CCTV, which was collected and sent to Gardi to be reviewed. Armed patrols were increased in the Tala area in the hopes of stopping any escalation in the gangland and family feud violence that might have been worsened by Melanie's death. Links between those involved in Melanie's shooting and the then-raging feud between the McCarthy and Dundon gangs in Limerick had been made, and there was a real fear that all hell would break loose in those quarters because of Melanie's murder. A spokeswoman for the Irish Traveller movement appealed for calm and asked that people cooperate with Gardaí in order to bring those responsible for Melanie's death to justice in the proper way. Those thought to be involved in the shooting death were named locally among youths living in Tala. Quickly, pictures of the suspects ended up on Bebo, a popular social media at the time. Thereafter, death threats began against the suspects. Michael Moran, Christie's dad, appealed to the public via the media. He said, quote, Give yourself up. This is not about traveller families. It has nothing to do with a traveller feud. And in reference to his son Christopher's loss, Mr. Moran said, quote, My son is in bits. He's broken-hearted. He's trying to come to terms with it. End quote. Two people were noted on what was described as good-quality CCTV by the Irish Times, one of whom was apparently readily identifiable. But by the time the Gardaí had confirmed the identities of the men that they were looking for, those two men had gone on the run. It seemed that they were being moved from house to house to evade arrest. In response, Gardaí sent their names and pictures to all ports of entry and exit from the country and began monitoring known associates to try and pinpoint the men's locations. Those two men were eventually caught up with, though. A teen and a man in his twenties were arrested by the Garda Armed Emergency Response Team on the 16th of February in a raid on an apartment in Athai, County Kildare. They were brought to Talag Garda Station to be interviewed under Section 50 of the Criminal Justice Act, which applies in cases of murder where a firearm is used and allows a maximum detention period of up to seven days. While the two men were being questioned in relation to Melanie's killing, her remains were released back to her family for burial. They chose to do this in Kentish Town in London, in the church that Melanie had made her first Holy Communion in, and where she had planned to be married in the coming years. People gathered on Friday the 17th of February to mourn together the loss of the young girl.
Her family arranged a sending-off fit for the girl they called her princess. Pink was the colour used to memorialise her, and Melanie was laid to rest in her favourite pink tracksuit. Christy Moran placed the engagement ring the young couple had planned on using on Melanie's finger as she lay in repose in the church. Flowers were piled high onto the back of a flatbed truck, including arrangements spelling out her name, the word princess, Barbie, and one in the shape of a mobile phone. Melanie's blush-pink coffin was transported from the funeral mass in a white carriage drawn by a team of white horses with pink feathers in their manes. Six vintage cars brought Melanie's bereft family to Highgate Cemetery, where the 16-year-old was laid to rest. During the ceremony, the parish priest said, quote, When someone's life is cut short, then our normal way of comforting people seems somehow less than adequate. End quote. Meanwhile, back in Dublin, a man named Keith Hall, aged 23, was charged with Melanie's murder along with the possession of a double-barreled, sawn-off shotgun. He had been arrested at 3pm the previous day on the 16th of February at Talagarda Station and made no reply to the charges. There were angry scenes at Tala District Court when members of Melanie's family shouted abuse at the man now alleged to have committed the murder of their daughter. There was a strong guard of presence at the court due to the nature of the crime. Hall was remanded in custody to await trial. A 17-year-old had also been arrested in relation to the murder, but was brought before the court on drug-related charges. He also already had charges pending relating to the sale and supply of cannabis, as well as a number of warrants for his arrest in relation to heroin sale and supply and the possession of a shotgun and cartridges outstanding against him. He too was remanded in custody. It wasn't until the 12th of October 2012 that Connor Lally, writing for the Irish Times, reported that a teenager was due to appear before Talla District Court in relation to Melanie's killing. He was charged with the murder and remanded in custody to St. Patrick's Institution. The teen was unable to be named due to his age, but he was just days from his 18th birthday when the charges were laid down. He was sent forward for trial the following week and by that point, having turned 18, was named in the press as Daniel MacDonald from Brookview Lawns in Tala. I'm not one for New Year's resolutions, but this year I've made an exception. I want to try and make little changes in my life that will help support my physical health. I'm not talking anything drastic, no diets or anything like that, but something simple I'll actually be able to follow through on. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Ritual. Ritual is a vitamin for women. It's obsessively researched, ensuring that what's in it are things you actually need. Ritual contains nine nutrients that most women don't get enough of in their diet and delivers them in a way that your body can actually absorb. I'm a bit of a supplement skeptic, and the amount of research that has gone into designing this product is one aspect of Ritual that I'm really excited about. Rather than tossing in everything, the nutrients in Ritual are targeted to give your body the things it needs that will actually help you to support a healthy lifestyle. 
On top of that, there are two other things that have me thinking that I'll definitely be able to stick with a new routine. The first is that you can take it on an empty stomach. So if you're a breakfast skipping coffee drinker like me, there's no fear of upset tummies. The second is that ritual is delivered. You guys know me. The phrase delivered to your door is music to my ears. I don't have to worry about making sure I've run out to get more, to try and keep to my goal and keep me on track for a healthier life. And it's just as easy to snooze your subscription if you need to skip a delivery too. Better health doesn't happen overnight, and right now, Ritual is offering Mens Rea listeners 10% off during your first three months. Fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that supports a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com forward slash mens, that's M-E-N-S, to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com forward slash mens. On the 1st of July 2013, just the day before his trial was due to begin, Keith Hall entered a plea of guilty to manslaughter for his role in Melanie's killing. This plea was acceptable to the DPP, and so sentencing would occur later that month while Mr Justice Carney considered his decision. In order to come to that decision, the court heard the details of what Mr Hall had done that day and the role he had played in Melanie McCarthy McNamara's killing. The Irish Independent reported that Hall told Gardee that he had been approached the night of the shooting by a number of men while he was at a football field in Tala. He'd been told to throw a brick through a window of a particular house, and that two lads were to be shot that night. Keith Hall had agreed to play his part, and after throwing the rocks at the house, Hall said he heard a loud bang. After that, he'd flagged down a black 4x4 driven by another man and fled the scene. The vehicle was then abandoned at a bus terminus in City West. They'd left the car where they had because it had run out of petrol. The court heard that license plates had been stolen in order to match the black Santa Fe getaway car, which had been stolen itself from Rathgar some weeks before. The shotgun used in the attack and found near to the abandoned vehicle had been stolen a year before in County Kildare, and since its theft, the barrels had been sawn off. Keith Hall had been interviewed 21 times by Gardee and was described in police evidence as drip-feeding the Gardee information as the interviews progressed. The truth had emerged over the course of the interviews, but slowly. Hall had admitted to Gardy that Melanie's boyfriend and another young man had been the intended victims of the shooting that night. Hall's lawyer told the court that her client couldn't sleep at night, that when Hall closed his eyes, he saw Melanie's face. At that remark, there were audible gasps from the family members in the courtroom. And so, nearly a month later, on the 31st of July 2013, Keith Hall appeared before the Central Criminal Court once more for the purposes of sentencing. Mr Justice Paul Carney heard that Mr Hall had 111 previous convictions dating back to when Hall was just 14 years old. They included theft, burglary, drugs and traffic offences. The court was told that Keith Hall suffered from an addiction to heroin. Caroline Big, senior counsel, was defending. She said that Hall had been heavily intoxicated when the shooting took place. 
and had also taken crack, cannabis, cocaine and diazepam. A victim impact statement was read on behalf of the family by Melanie's godmother, Jennifer Roach, saying that Melanie had loved life but had not been given the chance to live it. That day, Mr Justice Carney handed down a 20-year sentence, suspending no part of it for the manslaughter of Melanie McCarthy McNamara. Justice Carney said that the use of drugs or having come from a dysfunctional background provided very little in terms of mitigation in his opinion. He refused to leave to appeal against the severity of the sentence. Melanie's family were present in the court and loud cheering was heard when the sentence was announced. They'd worn pink tops in Melanie's memory, some with pictures of the much-loved girl on the front and others emblazoned with the words Justice for Our Mel. On the steps of the Criminal Courts of Justice in Dublin City Centre, Melanie's grandmother, Frances McNamara, told the Irish Times, quote, I just couldn't take my eyes off him, that he was sitting right next to me and that he took our child's life away from us. Nothing will ever bring her back, but I felt we got justice for her today. End quote. Ms. Roach said after leaving the court, quote, It's the best news I've got in my whole entire life. I'm delighted that Judge Carney found it in his comfort to give him 20 years. I'm going to celebrate for the week. End quote. She went on to say, if he got life, he'd only do 15, whereas now we know he's doing longer. Melanie was perfect to us in every way. She would never say no to nobody, end quote. Hall was sent to Mountjoy Prison to begin his sentence, where he was housed in the special protection section to keep him away from other prisoners who might try and injure him. Hall shared a cell with two other men, though, and within two weeks of his return to the prison, those men had apparently turned on him. The Irish Times reported that Hall had been attacked by his cellmates. They'd taken hot water, dissolved sugar into it, and then boiled it. Then the two prisoners had poured the scalding concoction over Hall, down his back and over his face and chest. This had happened in the cell that the three of them shared at about 11pm. Prison officers were alerted by Hall's screams. He was removed to St. James's Hospital the following morning for treatment, and spent a week there before being returned to Mount Joy in mid-September 2013. Days before the scalding, Hall had also been set upon by other prisoners with a knife and was slashed across the face, receiving 30 stitches for that wound. On Monday the 13th of January 2014, Daniel MacDonnell appeared before the Central Criminal Court to face trial for Melanie McCarthy McNamara's murder. The now 19-year-old pleaded not guilty to the charges and just like his co-accused, MacDonnell also appeared before Mr Justice Paul Carney. A jury of six men and six women were sworn in, and proceedings began. Mr Brendan Grehan, senior counsel, acted for the Director of Public Prosecutions. In his opening speech, he told the court that MacDonnell had written certain statements indicating that he had been responsible for Melanie's death. Some of that was graffiti left in his cell when he was first brought in for questioning just days after the murder. Gardee noticed MacDonald's initials and name carved into the paint in the cell, as well as the phrases, Morin scummy knacker, Morin scum, I'll do 25 on D to life while you're crying, pikey, and two in the head, your bitch is dead. In addition, after he was remanded in custody to St. Patrick's, MacDonnell had handed a number of unsealed envelopes to prison guards for them to be sent in the post. 
both of those, Grehan asserted, contained admissions relating to Melanie's killing. Their contents were read to the court. The first was addressed to Lee MacDonald, either the brother or cousin of Daniel, sources conflict on this. Either way, the letter said, quote, Keep running all them up onto protection because this war ain't stopping. Take my word for it. Close range headshots. That's what I'm going for. If I get high court bail, I swear on my whole family, them four will be in the ground. I ran CM with his head up his arse. Two in the head, the bitch is dead. The silly motherfucker pulled out a hammer. Little did he know I had a loaded 12 gauge. Left his bitch all over the Sunday World front page. I'll never forget that mug, haha. The best night of my life. We'll make a few plans. Soon enough, we'll be running Tala. Bunch of bitches up there. Show them the McDonald's run the show. McDonald boys running the kip. Ha ha. The second letter was addressed to McDonald's then-girlfriend, Stephanie Toot. It read in part, quote, I never thought it would turn out like this. I feel like a scumbag. I don't feel it. I am one. I don't know what got into my head. The weed shit fucked me up. I'm sitting in my cell on 23-hour lockup. I'm thinking of the good times I had with you. Love the one and only Dano McDonnell. The MC will be back with a whack. One more thing, that other thing wouldn't have happened if I had known she was in the car. It was meant for the other smell bag. He won't get away with bullying my ma. What goes around fucking comes around. I'm the one who's stuck back up to them. B3 for life. Fuck it. Love you, baby girl, no matter what happened. I'll never forget him roaring like a girl crying. Bang, bang. These letters and etchings on his prison cell wall formed the basis of the state's case against MacDonald for the murder of Melanie McCarthy McNamara. The young lad had been interviewed over a dozen times, but maintained his no-comment response throughout. No fingerprints had been found in the abandoned car or on the weapon and cartridges used. Gardee had tried hard in their interviews to elicit some sort of response from MacDonald. The officers who conducted them were called to give evidence and were questioned closely, particularly by MacDonald's counsel, Patrick Marinin. In this way, the court heard part of those attempts by Gardee to get the then 16-year-old to react and answer questions. During the course of the interviews, Gardee had said to MacDonald, quote, You are the gunman, Danny. You are the man. You blew the face off the poor child. Can you explain why you weren't wearing balaclavas? Did you want to be recognized? End quote. They went on to question, quote, Did you want everyone in Brookview Way to know who carried out this assassination? Did you want to achieve some notoriety? You certainly did that. And, quote, I'd say you're as popular in West Tala as Bin Laden would be in New York. End quote. One particular Garda who interviewed MacDonald was asked by Mr. Marinin if he had called the teen stupid during an interview. Detective Garda Andrew Manning said he had in fact made such a statement. According to the Irish Times, the suggestion had occurred when Manning said to MacDonald, quote, It's an awful thing to have on your conscience, but do you know what must be really bothering you? You ran out of petrol. How stupid is that? End quote. Manning went on to say, quote, You left a trail that even Stevie Wonder could follow. MacDonald responded, No comment to each guard equip. A statement from the hospital staff who were there when Melanie arrived and who began her treatment was read for the court. 
It said that she had been admitted to hospital with a large head wound to the temple at 10.40pm that night. She was bleeding heavily from the wound and her condition worsened quickly. Doctors and nurses at the hospital tried for two hours to save Melanie before finally stopping efforts at resuscitation at 1am. The youth who was driving the silver Nissan the night Melanie was killed, Sean Byrne, told the court about the events of that night and how he'd seen the black SUV pull up alongside them and the gun that had appeared in the back driver's side window. He said he drove off as soon as he heard the shots and hadn't realised anyone had been hurt until he shouted to the back, was everyone okay? Melanie didn't respond. She was lying down across the seats in the back and appeared to be choking. It was at that point that he sped off in the direction of Tala Hospital. According to Andrew Phelan, writing in the Irish Independent, Sean Byrne told the court he did not recognise the person who had shot the gun from the back of the Santa Fe. He was, quote, a stranger to him, end quote. He did, however, know the accused by name and to see, though they weren't friends. After parking his car, he became aware of the Santa Fe pulling alongside all of a sudden, and he saw the flame of a shot fired. He denied producing a hammer and said he just sped off. Burns said, quote, I barely seen him. I wouldn't be sure of what I saw. I wouldn't recognize him. I was in shock, and I just wanted to get out of there, end quote. Martin Kavanagh, the chief officer in St. Patrick's Institution, was the one who had handed over MacDonald's letters to the Gardee. He acknowledged under cross-examination that MacDonald was known to be one of the prisoners who was on drugs and had been caught with homemade alcohol at one point. MacDonald was a protected prisoner at the time of his detention in St. Patrick's, and he was the only occupant of the cell where the graffiti was found. He also would have been aware that his post would be read before it was sent on. In his case, the two letters that appeared in evidence against him were read by prison officials and then handed over to the Gardaí given their contents. Prison officer Richard Pilo told the court that he had been the one to take the letters from MacDonald while he was housed on the B3 landing and that MacDonald would have been advised, as all prisoners were, that letters would be read. Mr. Marinin told the court that his client accepted that he had written the letters entered into evidence against him and that MacDonald's authorship of the documents should be taken as fact. Further witness statements were read to the court from people who had been on the road that night. They said that they saw the barrel of a shotgun appearing from the passenger side of the black 4x4, and that two shots were then fired into the silver Nissan. The statement of two boys who had been playing with a football out on the street that night recounted the shooting very clearly. They had seen a man hiding in bushes and speaking on a mobile phone. He'd looked down Brookview Way towards a silver car parked alongside the curb at the houses. The young boys had heard the man say something like, the silver car is in. After that, the black SUV drove down into the road and a shotgun appeared from one of the windows. One boy recalled that the barrel of it had looked as long as his arm. When the children heard the two loud bangs, they jumped over a garden wall and hid. They were terrified. The man who had been hiding disappeared through a gap in the wall after the shots were fired. The young boys told the guardee it was then that they realised that that man had been keeping sketch for whoever had discharged the gun. 
The jury were also shown the shotgun that had been found abandoned under shrubs near to the bus terminus by Garda Sergeant John Schley, who described the location it had been found near to the Black Santa Fe. The Garda Sergeant told the court that there were two discharged cartridges in the firing chambers. After a week of hearing evidence, the closing statements came. Patrick Merriman for the defence told the jury that there wasn't a scintilla of evidence against MacDonald for this crime apart from the letters entered into evidence, which were simply rants to a friend and a girlfriend. The prosecution had given no real role to MacDonald in the shooting. Sean Byrne, who was driving the other car that night, said he knew MacDonald, but had never seen the person who had drawn the gun before that night and the letters that the state was relying on seemed to place the gun in MacDonald's hands, but there was simply no evidence of that. Marinin went on to say that there was no evidence of a so-called turf war that might give his client a reason to target the people in the Nissan that night. The barrister also asked the jury to look at the circumstances of the writings held up against his client as proof of his involvement graffiti, and letters written by a young man in jail, a young man with a known drug problem. Marinin referred to statements made by Gardie to his client, which suggested that MacDonald would be known as a gunman and gain a sort of reputation, and that as a young, suggestible teenager, Marinin said that this might account for those writings. He also warned the jury of the dangers of relying on uncorroborated confessions and pointed out that in this case, McDonough's letters were the sole evidence against him. Brendan Grehan for the state said simply that there was no other interpretation for the letters and graffiti barring admissions of guilt by McDonald. Mr Justice Carney gave a strong warning to the jury during his summing up and directions regarding the letters and graffiti written by Daniel MacDonald. He reiterated that there was no corroboration of the so-called confessions contained in the letters and said it was up to them, the jury, to decide the weight of those writings. Only if they were satisfied that the statements were reliable could they convict MacDonald for the murder. After being sent out, the jurors deliberated for an hour and a half before being sent home. On Friday, January 24th, 2014, the jury began their deliberations again. After a few hours, they filed back into courtroom number six. It had taken them a total of four hours and 17 minutes to reach their decision. When they returned to the courtroom, they told the judge that they had reached a unanimous decision. Daniel McDonnell, was guilty of the murder of Melanie McCarthy McNamara. McDonald's previous convictions, including those for possession of firearms, various drugs charges, threatening to kill or cause serious harm, and violent behaviour in a Garda station, were detailed for the court, and Jennifer Roach once again delivered a victim impact statement on behalf of Melanie's family. Mr Justice Carney imposed the mandatory sentence of life. Melanie's parents, were not present in the court for the verdict or the sentencing. According to the Irish Times, as MacDonald was led away after the sentence was handed down, a woman shouted from the gallery, that's what you'll go down for, stitching up a fucking child, you animal. The Irish Independent, however, recorded that the taunts were aimed at the Gardee, and were to the effect that the Gardee had wrongly accused and convicted a young person. A week after MacDonald received his life sentence, 
His ex-girlfriend, Stephanie Touche, was before the Central Criminal Court. She had been listed as a witness for the prosecution, as one of the intended recipients of McDonald's incriminating letters. However, she had not turned up for court, and Gardie had failed to locate her. She was charged with contempt for her failure to appear, and it was explained that she had been too afraid to attend court and had been terrified when she found out that her ex was one of those accused of Melanie McCarthy's death. According to the Irish Independent, Touche had been served a summons and spoke to a Garda once the trial began, saying she would not be coming to court under any circumstances. The Garda then received a medical report regarding Ms. Touche, saying she was in a highly distressed state and she was afraid of her ex and others associated with him. The doctor recommended that Miss Touche be excused from court to preserve her mental health. Touche assured the court that she would comply with all further court orders in the future. The judge accepted her explanation, and she was given the benefit of the Probation Act for failing to testify during the trial. This would be only the first of many court hearings that would stem from the prosecutions of Keith Hall and Daniel MacDonald for the murder of Melanie McCarthy McNamara. Keith Hall appealed against the severity of his sentence in the end. He began his appeal on the 3rd of December 2015, saying that mitigating factors had not been given the correct or any weight by the trial judge in his case. His counsel said that it was quote-unquote utterly unknown how Mr Justice Carney had arrived at the figure of 20 years for the sentence. Caroline Biggs, senior counsel, said it was impossible to know what discount, if any, was allocated for the various mitigating factors by reading the trial judge's sentencing remarks. She went on to point out that even Garda evidence suggested that Hall was extremely remorseful and that he'd cooperated with the Gardaí for reasons beyond self-serving ones. Further, without Hall's admissions, it would have been impossible for the DPP to prosecute him. Ms. Biggs said this was given little to no weight in sentencing. Another aspect entirely absent from the original sentencing was Hall's issues with addiction. Ms. Biggs told the Court of Appeal that, but for his use of crack cocaine, Hall wouldn't have done what he did. His addiction was a feature of his life for many years and was due to his background and where Hall had come from. It too should have been taken into account in sentencing as a mitigating factor, but again Mr Justice Carney's rationale in coming to the 20-year sentence was opaque. Brendan Grehan, senior counsel, again acting on behalf of the state, said that the trial judge had said Hall's actions and involvement the night that Melanie was killed were clearly on the higher end of the scale for manslaughter. He went on to say, as recorded in the Irish Independent, that, quote, the room for manoeuvre was between a life sentence and the highest determinant sentence for manslaughter, which was widely regarded by practitioners as 20 years imprisonment, end quote. In other words, simply by giving Hall a release date, Grehan contended that the trial judge had mitigated the sentence and distinguished it from one of life. Mr. Grehan reminded the three-judge panel that this murder was a professional job gone wrong and remarked that, of course, Mr. Hall had remorse because who wouldn't, given Melanie had been killed by mistake? Hall had played a large role in this plot. In his judgment, Mr. Justice Alan Mahon said that the trial judge 
appeared to have neglected to take into account the guilty plea in mitigation, and though it was mentioned, no amount of time was suspended in Carney's headline sentence. The trial judge should also have taken into account Hall's family background and drug addiction, and there had been no consideration whatsoever of rehabilitation. It was best practice, just as Mahan said, to identify mitigating factors and point out what allowance had been made for them. The appeal court judge also pointed out that, although Mr Hall was heavily involved in the plan that night, and had attempted to draw people out knowing that they were to be shot, he hadn't actually been directly involved in the shooting. With that in mind, the Court of Appeal quashed the sentence. However, they imposed another 20-year sentence, this time with two and a half years suspended. According to the Irish Independent, Mr Hall was also required to enter into his own bond to keep the peace and maintain good behaviour in the period of that suspended sentence. Coming up in Season 1 of Scene of the Crime, Delphi. Why Libby? Why Abby? Why Delphi? Those girls loved each other. They were good friends. Neither one of them left each other's side. Both those girls are heroes. Before the words came out, I knew. I knew this was not good. As soon as I saw that, I knew something really bad happened. The detectives were like, this is not going to take that long. It's a small town. Somebody's going to say something, and this is all going to be over soon. The first couple of weeks, that's what it felt like, is that any day now. And then all of a sudden, a couple of weeks turned into a couple of months. My biggest fear is that whoever did this would do it again. I don't want that to happen to another family, because I'm telling you, it's hell. There was no logical reason anybody would have known those girls would be there that day. Child abduction murders in and of themselves are incredibly rare, but the abduction of two children at one time is even rarer. I've only seen a couple in my entire career. There is a lot of crime scene evidence. Uh, some of it is somewhat odd. Shortly after solving the Golden State Killer case, I did speak with an investigator that was involved with the Delphi murders. If you haven't walked across the bridge, you don't understand, right? Yeah, like that bridge but is scary. It is scary, and those railroad ties are rotted. That bridge scares me, so yeah. for somebody to be able to cross it, he's moving well enough that he has to know the bridge. He's done that before. It could have been any one of our kids. It could have been anyone at the bridge that day. It's hard for me to believe that anybody could do something so bizarre and horrible and not feel compelled to tell somebody about it. Those two young girls were everybody's daughter. I refuse to accept evil as a standard bearer in American society. I believe we're one piece of the puzzle away from figuring out who this individual is. To the killer who may be in this room. Do you want to know what we know? And one day, you will. You've just listened to a short preview of Scene of the Crime, Season 1, Delphi. Be sure to subscribe right now wherever you listen to podcasts. Daniel McDonnell also appealed against his conviction, but before that would reach the Court of Appeals, another legal action taken against an agency of the state by him made its way through the courts. In February 2015, MacDonald took a case against the Irish Prison Service and the governor of Wheatfield Prison in the High Court, alleging the conditions of his imprisonment breached his constitutional rights. Reports in the Irish Independent from the 26th of January 2014, just days after MacDonald's conviction, stated that the 19-year-old had been put in isolation after threats to disfigure him or have him killed came to light. 
McDonald was held in 23-hour lockup for the 11 months after his conviction. The Irish Prison Service said that this was for his own protection, but McDonald and his legal team argued that it breached his right to bodily and psychological integrity. He was allowed out of his cell for only one hour a day to do chores and exercise, and a request to be allowed to mix with other prisoners had been denied. This also meant that he was unable to take part in other structured activities. MacDonald said that this isolation had resulted in a decline in both his physical and mental health. The governor of Wheatfield Prison told the High Court that Mr. MacDonald was a difficult prisoner who had breached prison rules a number of times and also found himself the target of various gangs who had quote-unquote extensive means of influence in Irish prisons. If MacDonald was allowed into the general population, it would be impossible for prison authorities or guards to predict where danger to him might ultimately come from. Mr. MacDonald's position in the prison was monitored and assessed on a daily basis, but his safety was the responsibility of the prison services, and outside of the secure unit, that could not be guaranteed. In the High Court, Mr. Justice Brian Cregan affirmed that prisoners in Ireland are still entitled to some of their constitutional rights, and decided that the manner of MacDonald's incarceration had in fact breached some of those rights. The judge accepted that prison authorities had started the 23-hour lockup regime to protect MacDonald, but the length of this arrangement had in effect resulted in MacDonald being punished for something he hadn't done, and meant that he was in effect in solitary confinement, which is unlawful. The actions taken by the prison governor had been unnecessary and out of proportion given the circumstances. According to Justice Cregan's judgment, MacDonald would have to be housed in some other manner. But within the month, MacDonald and his lawyers were back in court, saying that the prison governor of Wheatfield had failed to act on the High Court judgment. When they returned to court at the end of February 2015, the governor of the prison said that MacDonald had been in protective custody due to threats against his life, and that he wouldn't be safe in general population in any prison in Ireland. On the 26th of February, Mr Justice Cregan accepted that the circumstances were difficult, but said that an alternative solution would have to be found. Two weeks later, there was yet another hearing, where it was pointed out that the judge's initial order had still not been implemented, with McDonald's legal team saying that if the situation was not rectified, they would have to consider lodging an application for their client's release under Article 40 of the Constitution. The governor of Wheatfield spoke in court, explaining that the prison had done what they needed to to ensure Mr. MacDonald's safety. Seamus Wolfe, senior counsel representing the governor, told Mr. Justice Cregan that the orders and injunctions being sought by MacDonald amounted to the micromanagement of the prison something beyond the remit of the courts. But on March 20th, Mr Justice Cregan granted MacDonald's application for an injunction, barring the prison service from continuing the 23-hour lockup regime. He issued a court order that MacDonald be allowed two hours social interaction daily for five days a week, as well as spending an average of three hours out of his cell on five out of seven days. Visits from family were set by the court order at twice per week, lasting up to an hour each time. However, the governor of Wheatfield continued his appeals against the decision, and Mr Justice Cregan's injunction and court order 
were overturned by the Court of Appeal in July of 2015. The three-judge panel said that it was up to the prison authorities to decide what measures were necessary to ensure the safety of those in their charge. Conditions in solitary confinement were harsh but not intolerable and were in place for McDonald's own protection. In 2017, McDonald's actual appeal against his conviction and sentence was to occur, but the day he was to appear, the court was told he was not fit to attend due to a psychiatric illness. Bernard Condon, senior counsel acting for McDonnell, told the Court of Appeal that they had been fully prepared to proceed that day. However, they had got news that a medical professional had said his client was unfit to attend. He asked that an up-to-date report on his client's psychiatric circumstances be prepared. A new date would have to be set for the hearing for the following year. And so, McDonnell's appeal against his conviction was heard in 2018 and was mainly concerned with the reliability of the letters presented as evidence against him. McDonald's barrister Bernard Condon said that the letters and graffiti had been the only real evidence against his client, and that they shouldn't have been admitted into evidence. He argued that even if they were found admissible, they did not constitute enough of a case to present before a jury. Condon told the Court of Appeal that MacDonald was 17 at the time the letters were written, that he had been on drugs since he was 11, and at the time of writing being kept on 23-hour lockup, and had experienced a number of personal circumstances that led him to be a fantasist. MacDonald was also susceptible to suggestibility, had poor self-image, and a desire for attention and notoriety. In June, the three-judge panel issued their decision. They noted that Mr. Justice Carney had deemed the letters reliable and that they had been written by MacDonald. According to the Court of Appeals, it had been up to the jury to consider what they meant. The evidence had been dealt with correctly and within the trial judge's purview, and the trial had therefore been fair and the verdict was safe. But with their legal fights over, neither MacDonald nor Hall have managed to stay out of trouble while in prison. In October of 2015, the Irish Mirror reported that Daniel MacDonald was moved from Wheatfield Prison to the Central Mental Hospital in August of that year. He had apparently threatened to take his own life in front of the prison guards. A source told the paper that MacDonald's behaviour behind bars was getting more and more erratic and hard to control and he continued to make threats against himself. In one incident, he had injured a prison officer. Warders guarding him had to wear riot gear after MacDonald had made a series of attacks against the jailers. He continuously threatened them, was violent towards them, and had once spit blood at the officers. Officers were also forced to lock themselves in an office after he had fashioned a weapon from a shower grill. In November of last year, 2019, Keith Hall was involved in an incident in Wheatfield Prison, which saw him and three other prisoners, all accused members of an active Dublin gang, protest against prison management. The Irish Sun reported that Glenn Kavanagh was to be moved in the prison after he had become abusive with staff, but he refused to leave the 3F landing. Forty prison officers had to be dispatched to deal with the incident, and when they entered the landing, they found four men in a cell, including Mr. Hall, shirtless and covered in shower gel, in an attempt to make moving them difficult. 
It took two hours to resolve the incident, but eventually Kavanaugh was indeed moved, and no one was hurt in the protest. It would appear that both men will spend the greater portion of the next decade in the company of other men locked up as a consequence of their gang-related crimes, though the motive for the shooting death of Melanie still remains somewhat of a mystery. In the TV3 documentary Ireland's Teen Killers, a theory is posited that Daniel MacDonald had been part of a gang allegedly run by Stephen O'Halloran. O'Halloran was shot dead while sitting in a car outside his mother's house in Talla in 2009. The documentary goes on to suggest that perhaps MacDonald was part of this gang and believe Christy Moran or his family were involved in O'Halloran's killing. Whatever the motive, there will never be a good enough reason to explain the 16-year-old Melanie's death. The gang that MacDonald was purportedly a part of, which had effectively controlled drugs and illegal activities in that part of Tala, collapsed after Melanie's death and it was quickly replaced by another group. In the years since, the hutch Kinahan rivalry has superseded the previous gangland drug wars and names like Cahill and Gilligan and Highland faded through assassinations or lengthy jail sentences. It would put you in mind of the words of Larry Dunn, credited as the man who first brought heroin to Ireland as he was led away to prison in May of 1985. He shouted at community protesters gathered outside the court to celebrate his lengthy sentence, quote, If you think we were bad, wait until you see what's coming next. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. Don't forget, if you like us, subscribe and leave a review. Or better yet, tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Alexandra, Lena Kyo, Louise Flannery, Austin Zubko, Leisha Nitrasic, Chris Carey, Stephen Hanrahan, Evelyn, Agnes Jeffcoat, Laura Kate, and Carmelo Dwyer, who has very generously upped her pledge. Thank you so much, guys. Your support means the absolute world to me, and I appreciate it so much. Patrons get ad-free and early release episodes, as well as bonus content and nifty merch. I hope you'll check it out. With thanks this week also to our sponsors. Don't forget to check out Ritual at ritual.com forward slash men's. That's M-E-N-S where you'll get 10% off your first three months of vitamins. And remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so why not help us out and get yourself an awesome deal to boot? Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Paul's lawyer told the court that her client blah 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 blah